0: And in that same way, you might say that for this total human uh, as as, as the kind of ideal of of our contemporary working life, your whole world, as it were, is an office. You you can work all the time in the train, uh, in bed, in the toilet, uh, wherever. You can always strike a deal. You can always uh, answer an email. And you always need to be, as it were, um, uh, clicked on, so to say.
1: Hello, you are listening to Studium Generale, the podcast of the Erasmus University. My name is David Boeren, programmaker science, and together with my colleagues I organize lectures, workshops, film screenings, and more, for students, but also for non-students, to broaden their horizons. Hard work pays off. You snooze, you lose. Or, quitters never win, winners never quit. Nowadays, inspirational quotes like these follow you around wherever you look. From crypto bros to entrepreneurs like Gary Vaynerchuk, being on the grind seems to be all the rage. But why do we want to work on ourselves this much? Is success really a matter of hard work or does luck also play a role? And does it make you a loser if you do not succeed? Dr. Thijs Leister visited us to talk about this growing need to succeed. He's assistant professor of philosophy of art and culture at the Rijksuniversiteit Groningen and wrote multiple books on philosophy, culture and the arts. In this lecture, Thais Leister will explain where the need to succeed comes from and whether it is realistic. Why do we focus so much on ourselves, and can we learn to focus more on each other? Are you interested in more of these kinds of lectures? Then check out our website, social media, or our YouTube channel at SG Erasmus for our upcoming events, or as we are doing right now, to listen to some of our previous events. Have fun listening to the lecture. Thanks for that kind
0: introduction and uh, thanks also for the invitation to be here. Uh, very nice to be in Rotterdam. Actually, this uh, I think is my first uh, public lecture again since um, well the end. Uh, end. Let's hope that it's the end for now uh, of the uh, pandemic. So this is very uh, exciting also for me. Um, today I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm going to tell you how to win in life by meditation and by investing in cryptocurrency. No, I'm (laughs) kidding, of course. That's not what I'm going to talk about. Um, If you wanted to hear that, you've come to the wrong place, or probably you actually did come to the right place, because that is what people do at uh, Erasmus University, I think, but you come to the wrong room, because it's not what I'm going to talk about uh, tonight. Rather, what I'm interested in is indeed how this kind of imperative to to win, to succeed, how it became such an important aspect of our working lives, or what one could also call uh, the uh, dominant work ethic. And what does it say about our Uh, changing conceptions of work and success, and success in work and success in life. And finally, what are the implications of these kinds of changing conceptions, these changing cultures, you might say, uh, implications in terms, as I will later uh, talk about, precarity, mental health and uh, economic inequality. And uh, to talk about that, I am going to uh, proceed in the following way. Uh, So first, I'm going to talk a little bit about the notion of post-Fordism in relation to uh, neoliberalism. Then I'm going to talk about creativity, spirituality and self-precarization as the kinds of characteristics of, of contemporary working life. And finally, I'm going to talk about the possibility with a question mark uh, at the end of a new class struggle. Is, is there a need for a new class struggle, and, and what would that mean, and who would be actually struggling with whom? And I've here also on the sheet uh, um, added the, uh, the book covers uh, obviously, as a kind of as a shameless self-promotion uh, and uh, as, as to show off uh, of, of how successful I am. Okay. Uh, but also, um, uh, obviously, for I- in case you want to do some further reading on the kinds of topics that, that I'm uh, talking about tonight. So, my lecture today is mainly based on, on these two uh, books. The one from 2016, which is already a little bit older and uh, the one from 2019 published uh, actually right before uh, the start of the pandemic. Uh, There is some interesting resonance, uh, which we um, could go into later. Uh, And additionally, a third book will uh, come out in October, which is in in a way a kind of continuation of of the story that uh, that I'm telling tonight. But let me start this lecture by discussing a famous Dutch philosopher. This is obviously Louis van Gaal. And why am I mentioning him here? I want to mention him here because uh, in um, one of my books I rely uh, quite heavily on one of Louis van Gaal's concepts namely the concept of the total human, or in Dutch, uh, the totale mens. Uh, Louis van Gaal introduced the so-called principle of the total human, by which he meant that uh, he cared not only for the player on the field, so he was not only interested in, in in the soccer player on the field, but he was also interested in the human being outside of the playing field. So he was very much concerned with the well-being of his players, their mental health, their family life. This was also why, for instance, during the World Cup of 2014, which we so regrettably lost, of course, in in the finals against Spain. Uh, But during this uh, World Cup, Uh, towards the end of of each match, we could sometimes see uh, women and children of the players coming up the the field and and the players would uh, show um, uh, be in front of the cameras together with their uh, little uh, daughters or uh, or sons. Uh, And this was, as it were, all part of this principle of the total human by Louis van Gaal, who indeed argued that for the player to, to perform properly uh, they, uh, as it were, he uh, 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 should focus not only on, on this particular aspect on, uh, during the, the match, but on the kind of uh, total human. So to quote uh, Van Gaal here, he uh, says the following, I believe in the total human. The environment of the player is important. With Christmas, they prefer to be at home with their wi- wife and kids. Hopefully, They will then give everything on the field so that we can beat our opponent. Now, this sounds, of course, very sympathetic, you might say, sounds very nice. But um, if you think a little bit uh, longer about it, and if if you read also this this passage uh, carefully, um, he, he writes, hopefully they will then give everything on the field so that we can beat our opponent. It, it also sounds a bit like a kind of instrumentalization of the private life and the family life of the, of the football player for the success on the field. So in, in a way, all these women and children that are dragged along to, to the world match are the instruments for the success of the Dutch team. Now, why am I telling all this? Uh, why am, am I talking about uh, Louis van Gaal? Because this is, in in a way, uh, exemplary for uh, for our own professional lives and and how we have have dealt with it increasingly. So, in a way, this, this principle of the total human is not at all unknown to us. Rather, it is everywhere around us. And this kind of blurring of working life and leisure, of private life and professional life, or a kind of instrumentalization of of personal life for professional life is indeed something that we can encounter everywhere around us, and uh, which are actually key elements, I would say, of post-Fordism and of uh, neoliberalism. So let me look a little bit deeper into that and indeed then, uh, first of all, this, this notion of neoliberalism. Of course, neoliberalism has become uh, a kind of a buzzword, you might say. Uh, we we, we uh, hear about it a lot. Uh, it's not always used in, in a very precise way. It's very often it's referring to uh, privatization of, of public goods, of uh, the, the uh, demolishing of the welfare state, of austerity politics, uh, commodification of everything, uh, and so forth. But I, I want to focus here most of all on what you could call a cultural aspect uh, or dimension of, of neoliberalism and, and how it uh, changed the way we look at ourselves and the way it uh, also changed our conception of, uh, of labor. And uh, well, pr- perhaps to, to give a little bit of, of uh, personal background here, also w- when, I, when I wrote this uh, this. A second book that I mentioned, "Ferenehtu," uh, so unite. I actually started out also with uh, with a story of my grand uh, grandfather and uh, the uh, the way that he was very much engaged in worker struggles and worker parties and and, and those kinds of things. And and I was suddenly, in a way, um, fascinated by the fact that that not a lot of people today refer to themselves really as workers uh, in in dutch uh, arbeiders there, there are little uh, there are few people who indeed consider themselves as as workers in in this kind of traditional sense which uh, uh, i found interesting which i think has a lot to do with our uh, changing conceptions also of of work and how we conceive ourselves uh, or not conceive ourselves as as workers and, and one of the reasons for that i think uh, has already been mentioned in the the late 1970s by uh, the philosopher Michel Foucault, who talked about neoliberalism, uh, indeed already in in the 1970s, and talked about how neoliberalism um, creates a kind of new subjectivity, a new understanding of uh, of ourselves, a new kind of self-conception, which is indeed different than the kind of way that work and, and labor was considered, let's say, in the, in the industrial age. So, uh, very uh, broadly speaking, of course, in, if, if you look at the work of uh, Karl Marx, for instance, uh, he understands labor as being in, the, in a kind of exchange relationship with, uh, with capitalists, um, and the laborer sells their labor power uh, to the capitalist on, on a kind of capitalist market. right? And according to Foucault, with neoliberalism, this kind of relation is is changing. And to explain that, he uses the terms human capital and uh, the laborer as an entrepreneur of the self. Let me uh, give a quote here. Uh, Yeah, so uh, Foucault writes the following. The stake in all neoliberal analysis is the replacement every time of homo economicus as partner of exchange, so this was the kind of Marxian conception, with a homo economicus as entrepreneur of himself, being for himself his own capital, being for himself his own producer, being for himself the source of his earnings. So this is is Foucault. what is interesting, I think, what, what Foucault already sees there and, and what we are, think, uh, I think, very much living in, in today is this idea of uh, human capital. So the idea that um, uh, uh, what the, the kind of choices you make in life, kind of life choices, are, as it were, considered as investments. Investments in the kind of... Uh, um, a company that you yourself are, right? So in, in a way, this kind of distinction that that Marx still made between capitalists and, and, uh, and workers tends to fade here because we are, in a way, all capitalists in the sense that we all are, as it were, uh, uh, the managers of our own human capital. And this indeed means for Foucault that we b- become an entrepreneur of ourselves, that we, as it were, manage our own human capital. Uh, so for instance, in, in terms of the life choices of uh, health, or if, well, let's say if I move from uh, Groningen to uh, Rotterdam, then I am investing in my human capital because uh, pr- probably the, the, the chances of me getting a job in Rotterdam might be higher than in, uh, in Groningen. So that can be considered as a kind of investment in human capital, but also indeed traveling or all kinds of, uh, uh, all, all kinds of things that you do outside of your professional life can be considered as, as these kinds of investments the, the, the kind of uh, take a student that 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 uh, goes to do volunteer work in in Africa uh, building uh, uh, building a school or working at a school uh, uh, those kinds of things can also be considered as a kind of entrepreneurial activity or a kind of investment in your human capital so this is indeed According to Foucault, um, what what happens with neoliberalism and and a kind of new self-conception that emerges with neoliberalism, which basically entails the total economization of life. Because, indeed, everything tends to become such an investment. And we also talk about how we invest in relationships, right? And and if you don't get a kind of return of investments, then you will uh, break up your relationship, right? So all these kinds of things are are talked about in, in economic terms. And it also means like I said earlier already, that there's no longer this kind of strict restriction, uh, strict distinction between what happens, as it were, on the workplace and what happens outside it. So this is again this kind of Louis van Gaal principle of the total human, that that, uh, everything outside of the workplace is still, as it were, instrumentalized for uh, productivity. And finally, what it entails, and I will come back to that later, it uh, puts a lot of pressure on the individual, right? Because it means that if you, um, for one reason or another, uh, fail, or don't uh, make your career, as it were, then you apparently made the wrong investments with your human capital, right? You, you, uh, um, you invested in the wrong stocks, so to say, with your, with your human capital. So, like I said, I I will get back to that later how that puts a lot of pressure on on individuals and on on individual choices, and indeed, uh, uh, in part, explains also this this focus on individual success that uh, that, uh, we talked about in the beginning. Now, of course, this, this, as it were, this attitude towards labor stands not on its own, but hangs very closely together with all kinds of material conditions of work and labor, and this is indeed sometimes referred to as post-Fordism. Now, um, post-Fordism, of course, comes from Fordism, and Fordism again comes from uh, Henry Ford, uh, the famous, uh, famous uh, car manufacturer, he was uh, one of the first um, uh, uh, manufacturers who worked with a conveyor belt, with all the uh, workers in one place, with the strict di- um, uh, uh, division of labour, and with kind of standardised products. There's this, this famous saying of Henry Ford that he says, you can have my car in any colour you want, as long as it's black right because it it was basically the only color that they produced because they had to produce these kinds of standardized uh, products and with that came also the kind of standardized labor so a strict division of labor strict distinction between work and and leisure so a very strict working hours and perhaps this has been most beautifully uh, exhibited in this movie by uh, Charlie Chaplin, Modern Times. I don't know if you've seen it, but otherwise you definitely should because it's one of the most beautiful satires of this kind of industrial labor where the worker here uh, is behind the conveyor belt the whole day, uh, turning the, the exact same screws the entire day. So he gets, as it were, drilled by the machine and once uh, the, the, the factory whistle blows and, and the work time is over, he still can only make this uh, movement the whole time, so he walks through the streets and he is constantly doing this. And, well, it, it's, it's very funny. But this is, of course, not how work um, looks like anymore, at least uh, in, um, uh, for most of us and at least in, uh, in the West. Rather, if we look at uh, working life, in our own country then it very much revolves around uh, communication uh, information uh, giving presentations having meetings having meetings about presentations and um, uh, presentations about meetings and so forth and so on um, and uh, so this is sometimes also referred to as uh, a cognitive capitalism, the, the, the fact that capitalism revolves around cognitive processes, or information, or communicative capitalism, uh, or semi-capitalism, so a capitalism revolving around uh, signs. Uh, so these are all kinds of uh, academic labels, you might say, for, for these kinds of changes in, in the capitalist mode of production and indeed also referring to the fact that labor becomes increasingly immaterial, immaterial, you might say, so not a kind of heavy uh, uh, physical labor, but increasingly revolving around communication and uh, and information. So one one famous example of that is uh, the so-called Googleplex, uh, the the headquarters of, of Google, um, and if you look at this, uh, these, these, uh, these uh, images, then it looks a bit more like a playground, right, for kids. Than, uh, than an actual office with, with swings and, and slides and, and all those kinds of things. Um, and uh, Google was, was uh, also a couple of times elected as the kind of best employer because they, uh, you could bring your own dog, and you could sport, and you had uh, terrific lunches, and you could play volleyball and uh, table tennis and all those kinds of things. Uh, but of course, you might say that all those things are also meant for the employer to keep the employees on the premises right because you you cannot say well i have to leave because i have to um take the dog out or something no because your dog is at work right so you you already have your dog there and you can also not say well i'm i'm uh, going uh, away because i need to sport well you can sport at work right so y- your your entire life as it were becomes as it were um Uh, fixated on these uh, premises of of the Googleplex. And uh, that, of course, also hangs together again with the changing nature of work that revolves around cognitive processes and communication because of course you never know when this brilliant idea pops up, right? It it, it can come when you're under the shower or when you are indeed sporting and then you actually need to have that meeting right away with your co-workers to uh, work out that brilliant idea and create the next Google product, so to say. So um, this kind of a focus on on communication and information and language, I think, was very nicely voiced also by the Italian philosopher Paolo Virno. So he wrote the following. Thirty years ago, in many factories, there were signs that commanded silence, men at work. Whoever was at work kept quiet. One began chatting only upon leaving the factory or office. The principal breakthrough in post-Fordism is that it has placed language into the workplace. Today, in certain workshops, one could well put up signs mirroring those of the past, but declaring, man at work here, talk. Do we still know, by the way, who this is? Is it a known figure for this audience? Sorry? Sorry? No, 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 not suits. But you are—it it is a, a television show. Mad Men, right? Yes, Madman Men. Indeed. So this is uh, Don Draper, the protagonist of uh, Mad Men. And it's interesting because this is a series that, that uh, takes place in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, Madman is is, uh, an, uh, uh, is derived from Madison Avenue. So that was the place where in New York all the uh, advertisement uh, people were, uh, were working. And Don Draper is this kind of, uh, this kind of advertisement genius uh, who, uh, who makes all the brilliant ads of uh, um, uh, of the big companies, uh, and it's interesting if you look at that uh, show, that you in a way see this kind of, of uh, um, transfer from, from Fordism to post-Fordism, because indeed in that advertisement company people are constantly brewing on ideas, on, on uh, the way to communicate, uh, to, to bring messages across, so creativity is, is it, uh, as it were, their, their main selling point, so to say. And, of course, these kinds of developments also put extra pressure, you might say, on on universities uh, as uh, factories of knowledge. Uh, Let's put it like that. And and as as the the place where knowledge workers or cognitive workers, such as yourself, are are to be drilled. And with that, um, we also see all kinds of new values entering the work ethic. So if we think of the kind of industrial Work ethic, then doing your duty, being obedient, being punctual, being diligent. Those were the kinds of things that were valued in in workers. But with this kind of transference to post-Fordism, other values uh, come to be uh, central, such as flexibility, uh, autonomy, and also, uh, very importantly, creativity. So this is what I uh, want to talk about next, Uh, these kinds of uh, of values of uh, creativity, or as my uh, colleague Pascal Giele once called it, uh, creativism, uh, a kind of ideology of creativity. So creativity becomes a kind of requirement or ideal in all kinds of uh, uh, branches and in all kinds of... um, fields of, of uh, society. So this famous uh, Apple uh, advertisement is, is, I think, very much exemplary of that, the, the, the kind of imperative to, to think different. And then the kind of images of artists, mainly, that, uh, that indeed has, uh, have done so. And you see, indeed, that in many ways, the artist, uh, which, of course, always was a kind of uh, outcast, in, in uh, let's say, previous uh, societies, that the artist now becomes, uh, th- th- in, in a way, takes central stage, or, or a, in, in a way this, this ideal of the artist takes central stage, and the artist can indeed be seen as a kind of vanguard for these new forms of labour and, uh, and of the work ethic. And Pascal Giele, I already mentioned him, who is a colleague of mine at the University of Antwerp, once phrased it as such that the contemporary model worker is, as it were, a capitalist caricature of the bohemian artist. Now, what did he mean by that, or what would that entail? Well, first of all, of course, if we think of the bohemian artist, then this artist has uh, uh, he, he lives for his uh, work right there is not, not this kind of strict distinction between work life and personal life because uh, his, his all his whole life as it were revolves around making art so that means that he has, he, he doesn't have a kind of nine to five mentality but basically is always working and the whole world as it were becomes the, the workplace and in that same way you might say that for this total human as as, as the kind of ideal of of our contemporary working life, your whole world, as it were, is an office. You you can work all the time in the train, uh, in bed, in the toilet, uh, wherever. You can always strike a deal, you can always uh, answer an email, and you always need to be, as it were, um, uh, uh, clicked on, so to say. And uh, indeed also, just like the bohemian artist, this kind of contemporary ideal worker, is moving from project to project. It's not that you have this one task, but you are working on projects, and once you have finished a project, you are looking for the the next project, right? So you have these kinds of uh, phases, as it were, in in which you are working on a uh, project. And this kind of uh, um, idealized shape of, of the worker becomes quite quite uh, important and, and quite dominant. Um, perhaps some of you know the name of the urban geographer uh, Richard Florida, who uh, wrote this book in the uh, early 2000 titled the, the Rise of the Creative Class. And he was indeed arguing that there's this kind of new class, which he called the Creative Class, which... Um, <coughs> which uh, in, in a way was very important for, for urban life, because it used to be so that uh, first cities would build industries and then workers would come to the cities. But now, as it were, it w- was the other way around. First you needed to have this kind of creative class, a kind of vibe in your city, and then work would, would eventually uh, follow. And so in, in that way, this kind of creative class becomes the kind of engine of, of contemporary uh, economy. So you draw in the the hipsters and the artists and the bohemians and and then the rest will follow, so to say. But at the same time, you see that all kinds of other uh, sorts of work that are not necessarily artistic, um, in a way become infected, you might say, by this work ethic of flexibility and autonomy and and creativity. So one nice example of this is um, this uh, advertisement of, of uh, Subway, uh, the the uh, um, f- well fast food, is it? F- oh yeah, we can uh, call it fast food, right? That are indeed looking for a sandwich artist. Uh, so a sandwich art. What is a sandwich artist? A sandwich artist uh, has a positive outlook. They thrive in a busy work environment and are keen to learn the art of great sandwich making. Uh, Well, I will not read along, but it's, I think, very typical that even uh, such a thing as making a sandwich uh, gets raised to to the level of art. Uh, And it is indeed, I think, exemplary for the way that all kinds of spheres of work are um, uh, infiltrated, you might say, by these kinds of uh, artistic values. So uh, the the kind of imperative to be flexible, to be uh, autonomous, to be creative, now uh, now also uh, infiltrates domains like, well, uh, think of uh, construction workers, care workers, uh, people in in, uh, education, of course. Uh, So these kinds of of values spread all over uh, the working life. And what the implications of that uh, are, I will uh, will get to in a minute. Uh, First, I I want to also look at another kind of symptom that is, I think, interesting with regard to uh, this new work ethic, which is the kind of popularity of all all, uh, sorts of new spirituality, mindfulness, uh, meditation, and those kinds of things uh, on the the workplace. So I, for instance, regularly get from my university these kinds of advertisements uh, or offers for uh, meditation classes or mindfulness classes and those kinds of things. And, um, well, I'm I'm always a little bit uh, um, wondering, is, is my employer really so uh, concerned with my personal well-being or is this also a kind of way to improve my productivity uh, so as to uh, make me uh, work even harder or or, um, uh, write even more books and and articles and those kinds of things, in the same way that Van Gaal also instrumentalizes the personal life of, of his players, perhaps I'm a little bit paranoid. But in any case, there is this kind of interesting paradox going on, I think, that of course, The inspiration of these practices, such as meditation and and mindfulness and and so forth, is, of course, these kinds of Eastern religions. And they are are used to, as it were, steer away from the rat race of our Western capitalist societies, to steer away from the individualism of uh, our Western society, uh, and, and to get away from that all. But the paradox is, of course, that they are used in order to be even more productive, in order to be, uh, in order to be able to cope with all the work pl- pressure and indeed to be able to uh, score even higher and to succeed even better in all kinds of things. Right, Especially if you see such a book cover as Meditate to Win, uh, it, it's a ver- very fascinating book. Um, uh, title in a way because it 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 gets away, you might say from um, it, it. It's a long way from the kind of original uh, um, uh, place that these kinds of Eastern meditation techniques had within within their own culture. And and this goes quite far. I, I once read this article in uh, in which it was said that mindfulness was actually also used as a kind of technique within the U.S. Army for uh soldiers who had um, who were reluctant to pull the trigger right so they uh, apparently this is a thing that some soldiers in their training are uh having difficulties with uh, with uh, shooting a rifle and then they uh, take some mindfulness classes and then they are actually able to kill people um, what i find uh, perhaps most uh, um, fascinating in, in, in sometimes uh, something that that I, I recently stumbled upon and, and which actually was something that David uh, uh, who um, you you pointed out this to me also that there is now also this kind of link between these forms of new spirituality and uh, 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 cryptocurrencies and uh, day trading and those kinds of things that in in that uh, the the extent to which you are well balanced and, uh, uh, and, and and spiritual and so forth and so on will determine how successful you are uh, financially. So yeah, this was something that I encountered uh, in uh, on on this um, on this website. This is not advertisement, by the way. But uh, so d- just a couple of quotes which I found very fascinating. So conscious crypto is a private learning community offering spiritually-minded individuals the guidance, education and support in mastering cryptocurrency and building wealth consciousness. As an aware and spiritually evolving being, you sense that the current financial system is serving someone, but that someone isn't you. So make the conscious decision to be wealthy. Yeah, so I, I find it endlessly fascinating how these things are <laughs> indeed uh, brought together, uh, and it, it's I think very exemplary for for the kinds of things that that I've I've been talking about. Now, f- final uh, aspect of um, of this of this new work ethic that I want to, t- to talk about is uh, self precarization, and and self precarization. This is a concept by an Austrian social philosopher, Isabel Loray. And, of course, precarity or or uncertainty, as as you could also say, is again such a thing that very much belongs to the bohemian lifestyle, you might say, right? It's very much associated with artists, especially this kind of romantic bohemian uh, figure of the artist. Uh, Think of Van Gogh, but also think of... La Boheme of of Puccini, that the kind of ideal image of the artist is that you are starving uh, because you don't have enough uh, money to buy something because you live for your art, of course. Uh, You have an insecure income, and then eventually you die of syphilis or something. Uh, But at least you are free, right? You are are not living the, the bourgeois lifestyle. You are living the bohemian lifestyle. And uh, eventually, perhaps you will be successful, well, in the case of Van Gogh, this was, of course, after his death. Uh, Today, ideally, we would want to be successful in life, uh, when we are still uh, breathing. But this kind of of self-romantization, you might say, of of flexibility, autonomy and, and precarity, uh, is very much, I think, part of, of our working life also. In, in, in that sense that security and having a boss, having a fixed contract and those kinds of things are increasingly frowned upon. And if you work, for instance, for the same employer for 25 years, uh, you used to get a gold watch or something, but now you are considered a loser, right? Uh, You you should uh, actually be looking out for the next job when you are uh, in in your uh, current job for for two years or something, or even better, you don't have a fixed contract because you are uh, (coughs) self-employed. And of course, this is something that is very much part of of our uh, contemporary platform or or gig uh, economy, Uh, in which workers are no longer considered as employers, but as independent uh, uh, contractors. And uh, this is actually also something that artists are quite literally the the vanguard in. So this is a a, a graph that I um, I took from the the journal Bookman, who is is dealing with uh, art uh, policy doesn't really matter if you, if you cannot read everything in, in the graph, but let me explain a little bit what these figures say. So the, the above lines are uh, people working in the, um, in the creative industries and in the arts, and it's, it refers to the number of uh, one-person um, uh, companies, so in, in Dutch, set payers. Um, so uh, independent people who don't have uh, employees, but who are working for themselves as their own boss. And you see that since 2007, uh, this figure was always high in in the creative industries, but it is uh, increasing uh, through time. But perhaps more interesting is that orange line, which is uh, uh, people not working in, in creative industries, but the total economy, and then you see that this is indeed following this trend of uh, artists and creative industries uh, with an increase of uh, people who are self-employed. And this is, uh, of course, not not everyone who is self-employed is is therefore also precarious. This is not the case. Of course, you can be self-employed and you can be quite wealthy. But there is, of course, a lot of people who are... um, who are indeed self-employed and, and barely make an income for themselves. And this has everything to do with this uh, gig economy. Um, yeah, so this is, this is a, uh, an article a couple of uh, years ago in, in the uh, Dutch nu- newspaper, The Volkskrant, and the headline reads uh, that um, deliverers they don't want to have security if I uh, have to have a fixed contract, then I will quit and this is I think very interesting right because there there is indeed this kind of craving for autonomy, a craving for for flexibility uh, and a kind of distaste for um, uh, for fixed contracts or or for having uh, uh, having a fixed job um, and seen from the perspective of of these uh, uh, boys, this is probably quite understandable because they can indeed fill in their own hours. But of course, f- as a kind of model for the entire society, this can be quite uh, detrimental, right? For, for solidarity, for, for income security, uh, because it will be different if one of those people um, falls from their bikes and breaks a leg or something, then he will, of course, also not have any uh, income. But still, there is this... You might say ideology, indeed, of freedom, of flexibility, uh, and of uh, of autonomy, which you might say mostly will benefit the, the employer. <coughs> so what's the problem? Why am I whining about this? Uh, well, I, I already hin- hinted uh, a little bit uh, to this, that all this... Um, creativism, autonomy, flexibility, and so forth, also creates precarity and insecurity in a a variety of ways. First of all, one could talk about um, existential precarity, the the, the kind of precarity that your sense of self-worth and your sense of... um, the extent to which you value yourself very much becomes dependent on this kind of success, on professional success. And indeed, that if you do not succeed in this way, that you also uh, therefore consider yourself, so not only your your job, but yourself, as a failure. And I think this, this is something that we see very much in all kinds of... Uh, graphs also uh, referring to the increase of burnouts, of stress, depression of anxiety and especially also in uh, uh, with with younger people and and I myself as, as someone working at the university also see this very much already at uh, with with students and and of course the last couple of years with the pandemic was was uh, uh, completely crazy but even before that uh, you could see um, an increase of, of students coping or dealing with with all kinds of forms of anxiety because there's this kind of one. One to one relationship between their sense of self worth, it seems, and the extent to which they succeed. And this was, I think, very nicely uh, put also by uh, Richard Sennett when he wrote the following The statement, you lack potential, is much more devastating than you messed up. It makes a more fundamental claim about who you are it conveys uselessness in a more profound sense. Richard Sennett also calls this the specter of uselessness, a kind of specter that haunts us in our dreams that uh, perhaps if we don't uh, uh, succeed, then we will become useless, and it will be our own fault, right? It will be our own responsibility because apparently we fail to make the right choices, we fail to invest our human capital, in a proper way. And uh, I would say again, in, in, um, in the kinds of field, fields of uh, knowledge work and creative work, I think that this is all the more uh, um, all the more present right in, in academia, you see this a lot. indeed in, in, in creative practices, you see this a lot. And this is also why in these kinds of fields of, of work, there is a lot of uh, paid uh, sorry unpaid overwork right in the sense that people are willing to to work a lot more uh, than what they are actually hired for because they don't really make this kind of distinction between uh, between work and um, uh, and life right so they they give everything as it were and uh, an interesting observation is there from to a French sociologist, uh, Luc Boltanski and, and Yves Chiapello, who wrote the following about this. Um, measures aimed at giving wage earners greater security were replaced by measures directed towards relaxing hierarchical control and taking account of individual potential. In a political reversal, autonomy was, as it were, exchanged for security. And to give a little bit of context uh, uh, of this quote, so they are actually talking here about uh, periods after the the 1960s, so after the kind of student revolt of, of of 1968, where uh, there was, of course, this huge uh, uh, uprising of workers and of students against capitalism, against the kind of alienation and and, uh, uh, dullness of of work. And what they argue is that there is a kind of irony there, that this new spirit of capitalism that uh, that, that they are talking about, in a way adopted all kinds of ideals of the student uprising, ideals, indeed, such as uh, uh, creativity and, and flexibility and those kinds of things. And as it were, integrated it into the uh, capitalist work ethic, but trading it off against security. Right? So up until then, uh, let's say workers would have a, a fixed contract and, and would, uh, would have a kind of secure income. This we did away with. So you get the autonomy, you get the kind of exciting work, uh, work life moving from project to project, but you lose the uh, security. And there is, of course, a great, uh, an important class difference here, right? That, that perhaps for the, the kind of higher echelons of, of society, this can actually be a nice trade-off uh, because you want your work to be exciting and, and so forth and so on. But of course, for, for, the, for, the, uh, for the lower classes, the working classes, this trade-off was, was very, um, very negative. And uh, I guess right now we are uh, seeing very much the kinds of um, uh, consequences of that. So what these quotes by uh, Richard Sennett and, and, and Boltanski and Ciappello in a way uh, say is, is quite drastic, you might say, in that all this talk about making uh, your, um, your job out of your hobby, to follow your passion, to be creative, and those kinds of things, it all led to a situation in which we become easily exploited In a certain way, we are, uh, in in, in a way, of course, there was was this promise that we are, uh, that that the kind of Fordist labor that Charlie Chaplin was showing, that this was alienated labor, and now we get a different kind of labor in which we are very much uh, one with with our jobs. But in a certain way, one could also argue that we become even more alienated, even more exploitable, um, because now not only our, let's say, physical labor power is exploited, but also our cognitive capacities, our minds, our, our entire selves even are exploited and made increasingly productive for uh, the capitalist machine, you might say. The, the French philosopher Bernard Stiegler uh, once called this the kind of total proletarization of life. So the next question, of course, would be uh, how to deal with that, how how to respond to that, how to cope with precarization or with uh, this to- total proletarianization of being caught in, in this constant uh, rat race. And I think, well, we might think of, of two possible answers or, or two possible solutions uh, also referring actually to those two versions of precarity that that I talked about with Senate and with Poltanski and Ciapello, the existential one and the uh, economic one. With regard to the existential one, um, and this is a part of of the the kind of first essay that I wrote about this in in The Great Leap Inward, uh, I I concluded with the possibility of us, uh, again, uh, re our life, right, in, in the sense that in, instead of making everything uh, the instrument of our productive life, we could try to again make distinctions in that not everything in our private life needs to be in the surface of production, but rather acknowledge that we are more things than only a worker. We can also be a parent, or a son, or a daughter, or a volunteer, or being engaged in in politics, uh, sports, uh, a person, etc., etc., without having these things looking good on our resume, right? So that that is, I think, an an important uh, addition to that. Um, And this might actually mean that perhaps we should be learning to be less passionate about your job. This might sound strange, but there's actually a recent book that had the title Work Won't Love You Back, which I thought was a a very nice title, right? Because we are all, in a way, Stimulated to love our work, and of course, it, it is very nice if you love your work. But you should also remember that perhaps your work won't always love you back. And I think we are actually gradually seeing a kind of increased consciousness of that. For instance, in academia, uh, but also in in, in other uh, um, parts of of the working life. So this is of course easier said than done, and and uh, Additionally, a kind of additional problem is that in all these other facets of life, there might also be a rat race going on. So uh, there are, of course, all kinds of books, also how to be successful as a parent, or how to excel in, uh, as, as, a, as a lover, or as a cook, or whatever. So you can, in, in a way, be, be uh, uh, having your rat race in all these kinds of domains. Uh, because, of course, we are living uh, perhaps generally in this kind of culture of competitiveness. So it's very hard, I guess, to to combat such an ideology on an individual basis, and I think we won't really be able to fix that individually, since the problem itself isn't individual. So, in a way, uh, I would say, Uh, but uh, I I guess I'm a a kind of card-carrying Marxist. Um, So in in a way, I would say that um, just like older forms of exploitation and precarization and proletarization, we are dealing indeed with a collective issue that also requires collective uh, action. And also this, I think, becomes increasingly clear. Uh, We have seen, of course, in, in recent years, all kinds of publications of increasing inequality. I think of the the bestseller by uh, Thomas Piketty. Uh, We have seen that trickle-down economics was actually a scam, Uh, and it seems to be so that there uh, is a a kind of new-class struggle, even. And if you don't believe me, then you might believe the the guy uh, in in the... um, At the bottom of of this sheet, Warren Buffet, who also once said, there is um, a class struggle and my class is winning. Warren Buffet being the the third, I think, richest man in in the world. And this class struggle is, is, I think, very interesting. It's also something that, that very much speaks to the kind of popular imagination. If we look at, uh, at, at all kinds of Hollywood movies, we see uh, um, uh, an, an interest, a fascination with all kinds of forms of, of class struggle in which the uh, underdogs are up, uh, uh, rising up against their uh, oppressors. Even in, in, in the Lego movie, indeed, there is this construction worker who is fighting precedent business. Uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting that we, we, we see this interest in uh, class struggle. But the question is, of course, again and again, uh, which kinds of classes are we talking about and who is actually combating uh, who and for what reason? Now, traditionally, this uh, answer was quite easy uh, in the sense that we had, of course, the pro- proletariat, uh, the, the, the working class class, Versus uh, the capitalist, right? And, and the, the, it, it's, it's uh, this kind of interesting cartoons from from the 19th century or, or the early 20th century that that come along with it, uh, that you need to organize and take the big bag from from the capitalist, of course, wearing this top hat, uh, or this uh, beautiful um, poster from from the Dutch Social Democratic Party. The, the, the worker who is com- combating this octopus uh, which is uh, symbolizing capitalism, which uh, has all these arms of war and, and uh, hunger and, uh, and those kinds of things. So th- this was an easy time, you might say, right? In, 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 uh, in that it was quite clear who was uh, fighting who. But if we are talking about class struggle today, uh, who is indeed combating who? This was uh, one of the questions that I discussed in in my uh, short essay. Um, And one of of the candidates, you might say, that that I uh, discussed there was the precariat. And the precariat is is, uh, a neologism. Um, It was discussed, uh, amongst others, by British sociologist Guy Standing, I don't think he actually coined the term, it it was already uh, um, present also in in earlier French uh, articles, but but he made the the, the concept kind of famous. And precariat is is of course the um, combination of proletariat and uh, precariousness, or precarity. So Guy Standing is is most of all referring to an increasing group in society that has these kinds of short-term insecure jobs, uh, not only in in terms of insecurity of of, uh, contracts, but also of uh, long-term perspectives of of labor, the kinds of skills you have that you don't know whether they are still uh, important in in a couple of years, uh, or uh, people living in social isolation and and, and so forth and so on. But one of the problems that that, uh, Guy Standing also indicates here is that this group is so uh, diverse Uh, because it it contains not only, let's say, lower-skilled labor, like uh, care workers or taxi drivers or construction workers who are also working in these kinds of uh, flexible contracts, but it also contains... Uh, uh, academics or, or creative uh, uh, working uh, people in, in the creative sector. Uh, and it also uh, contains uh, migrant workers, who are, of course, uh, uh, perhaps the most precarious of all, living in a kind of insecure uh, situation that, um, that they don't even know whether they can uh, um, remain here. And one of the problems of that is, according to Guy Standing, that this group is so diverse that it doesn 't really consider itself as a class, so and, and it, it's very easy you see also uh, for uh, populist politicians, for instance to to play out the one group against the other right to play out for instance the migrant worker against the the uh, um, the white working class, or to uh, play out the student uh, versus the uh, um, the, the uh, retired people or the boomer versus the Gen Z and, and so forth and so on. So there are all kinds of uh, um, rifts going through the precariat, actually, that, that makes it, in Guy Standing's terms, also a dangerous class, a, a class that that doesn't have a really kind of fixed position but, but can go in, in all kinds of different directions. So what we would require, you might say, is... In, in traditional Marxist terms, uh, class consciousness, right? So Marx, for instance, talks about the distinction between a, what he calls a Klasse an sich and a Klasse für sich. Uh, uh, the Klasse an sich meaning. Uh, let's say, the kind of sociological definition of a class, so a, a, a class that can be defined according to certain features and certain characteristics, but it only becomes a real class when it also recognizes itself as a class with a certain shared uh, interests uh, or, or perhaps even a kind of shared... Um, uh, identity and a shared enemy, you might say. So in in the case of of the proletariat, of course, this was also not something that happened immediately. They also had to, in a way, define themselves, first of all, as a uh, class. Now, I think this is uh, uh, perhaps one of the the, the greatest uh, challenges, and and I guess it became even more clear in, in many ways, during uh, the pandemic, right? Because now it was suddenly quite clear uh, that um, we were not all in this together, right? This was of course what all the, all the stars uh, and all the politicians were saying. I think there was this, this one YouTube video of, of Madonna sitting in her bathtub with rose petals in her huge mansion Uh, and saying that the virus really doesn't make any distinctions and uh, we are all in this this together. And this was, of course, not the case, right? Because it it was very soon clear that uh, uh, some people were more precarious, let's uh, put it like that, than than others, eh? that people without fixed contracts uh, or people indeed working in in the gig economy, Uh, or people working uh, with delivery services were precarious in various various, uh, ways. And uh, uh, indeed also, uh, like I uh, already mentioned, the people working in the creative sector very much also suffered from from the pandemic. So you might say that this was a moment... (coughs) and perhaps I'm, it's a bit of wishful thinking also from my, my part, but a, a moment of, of potential or, or a possibility of class consciousness of, uh, of the precariat, right? That we, we suddenly, as it were, saw these distinctions in uh, precarity and perhaps also realized that our precarity is not due to some kind of personal failure very often and uh, rather can be a sign of general precariousness. And that we depend for our well-being on the care from others and uh, we depend on on solidarity. And that also means, I guess, that reversely, um, perhaps our uh, definition of success should be altered and that we perhaps should redefine our success Uh, not so much anymore uh, as a kind of individual accomplishment, but rather in terms of a collective effort. So basically to conclude, um, uh, I would say that the only answer to these uh, new forms of of precarity and inequality um, is basically the same old answer as it always was, namely to uh, unite. And, uh, yeah, I guess I will leave it at that. Thanks for your attention, and I'm looking forward to, to the discussion.
1: That was the lecture. Interested in more? Then check out our website, social media, or YouTube for our upcoming events, or as you did just now, to listen or watch some of our previous events. Thank you for listening. <laughs>